This is the University of Applied Research and Development's Emergency Response and Risk Management video and podcast. You'll meet world-class leading professionals who share their wisdom, careers, and experiences. Join us on YouTube and all quality podcast platforms such as Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, and Radio Public. Welcome everybody to the University of Applied Research and Development, our emergency response and risk management podcast. I'm delighted to have with me Lucien Canton, who's an emergency management consultant in the US and San Francisco. He has a long history in the industry, working for the city and the county of San Francisco as the director of emergency services and management, and also worked for FEMA as well. So Lucien, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Lucien, we had a little bit of a chat just before we jumped on the podcast. I'd love for you to share with us how you came to be where you are, what your role is now. Okay. Well, my role now as a consultant is really to help people that have nothing in place. Uh, what I like to do particularly are the strategies where I come into an organization, uh, they're not really sure where they need to go. They know they have to do something. And so trying to help them get over the, the hump. Usually what happens, people will come bring us in and it'll be something specific. We, we want an emergency plan. We want an exercise. And when I look at this, what I find is they don't necessarily have all the context that they need to make those things operate. So they're sort of starting at the bottom when they really need to start at the top. And so what I like to bring to the table is where I start talking to them about, well, you really need an administrative plan or you need a strategy or you need a, an annual plan of how you're going to approach these things. You, you have to set whatever you're, you're doing in terms of a plan or, or an exercise into that context that, that understands where it fits into the broader scheme of things. So I first came to emergency management, <laughs> like a lot of the other dinosaurs, I came from another industry. Uh, I'd been in the military for a while, then I got into the private security industry when I came, finished that up. And it, it wasn't, in the private security industry, if you're not a police officer, you're kind of behind the power curve when it comes to applying for jobs. And just by chance, as a military reservist, I got picked up by the Federal Emergency Management Agency just in time to be a participant in the Loma Prieta earthquake. And after that was all over, the, the FEMA officer I was working for came to me and said, you know, I have an opening in my division. You ought to think about applying for it. And I, I couldn't even spell FEMA, but I said, sure, why not? I'll do it. Yeah, I'll sign. I, and the money was good and it looked interesting. And that's what got me started. And then from there, it was uh, just, I found that the skill sets that I developed in the military and in, in private security were directly transferable to what we were doing in emergency management. In fact, one of the things in the early, this was the, still the early days of FEMA, they didn't have a lot of things in place. And, and so it was kind of a we were kind of building it as we went, particularly when we talked about disaster operations. Let me just give that a second to finish reading. It'll, there we go. Uh, so that was how I first got involved. And then from there, it just sort of grew out from that. You know, I started getting more and more interested in the field. And then eventually I, I kind of just, it, it became sort of my life's work. And I enjoyed it so much that uh, when I, I get the opportunity to, take over as director of emergency services for San Francisco was a real treat. I mean, to be able to do it in my hometown with, with you know, my friends and family, it was a lot of fun. And then from there, consulting has been, been interesting because you, you try to transfer ideas from one organization to the other. 
And some organizations are receptive and some organizations are not quite ready yet. So it, it's really been an interesting learning experience. And the more you work in this kind of field, the more you realize how little you know and you start pushing yourself to learn more things. Tell us a little bit about um, FEMA and your role with FEMA and some of maybe the incidents or responses that you were involved in there. Wow, where to start? Uh, my very first operation was a, a typhoon in Guam. Uh, my boss called me up, said, we're going getting, getting on a plane. You're not going to be home for Christmas. And I went off and it's the first time I'd actually been in a typhoon because while we were there, the second typhoon came in and hit us. But it was learning to, to work with the local folks there. And the Guamanians, if you ever get the chance, they are wonderful, very friendly people, very good at what they do. And they have a, an attitude towards typhoons that I, I've seen across the country in, in different types of disasters where it happens so frequently that they, they have a system. They know how to deal with it. They're not afraid. And they've done a lot of mitigation stuff that allows them to rebuild and refit very, very quickly. Um, so that was a big learning experience for me, you know, just realizing that something that I saw is, oh, my gosh, this is a horrible disaster. They said, yeah, it's bad, but we can fix it and we're going to fix it. And we'll be back to normal very, very quickly. Uh, from there, some of the others that I did, the Northridge earthquake was a big one. Uh, that was the one down in uh, the, the Los Angeles area. And uh, I think the interesting thing for me, that was one of the longer ones. Uh, the Los Angeles area was a particular headache for us in our region because it seemed like every time we got to the point where we were ready to close up the office and call it a day, there'd be another disaster. You had the, the Rodney King riots, you had fires, you had earthquakes, you had all sorts of different things to just keep us going. So we were there for actually several years, you know, back and forth. Uh, so it was really kind of interesting. I think one of the interesting things from Northridge was how a disaster can change the, the dynamics of an area. Uh, there are a lot of retired aerospace engineers that lived there at the time, a lot of folks that, uh, oh, had, you know, they, they had essentially retired and they were set up, but they were, they were so upset by the earthquake, they decided it was time to move. And so they, they sold up and they moved to other states which now has an area now that you have an opportunity for people to move in. And now a new group of people move in. They're a much younger set of folks. They were largely Hispanic immigrants. So you have this whole change now, the different types of restaurants, the different demand for food, different demand for services. And so one of the things that is, is always interesting to me is how quickly disasters can change things for folks. Even though we think we're getting back to normal, it's sort of what we call a new normal. I love that you said that I've been talking about the new normal for the last couple of weeks and just really emphasizing, particularly for academic providers, that things won't be the same. You think it's going to be back to normal, but it's going to be completely different than you think it's going to be. And um, listening to a podcast yesterday with a group of people, Dr. Bill Patton from the US, who was previously with FEMA, he said that the the non-health impacts are far greater than the health impacts. The loss of life is a tragedy, but the economic, the cultural, the geographic impacts, all of these things, schooling, education, uh, a generation that lost their graduation, all these things are much larger and long lasting. And so mm -hmm. what you just said there about this change in LA with people moving out, that's, that mirrors what he was saying is the impact. 
Yeah, we've, uh, we've, it's kind of a game where since a lot of us are just sitting home right now, I'm in a a couple of different categories that put me at risk. So I'm kind of locked down here, but which isn't a big deal because I work from home most of the time, but it it, it does make things interesting. Um, But one of the things that we've been playing the game is uh, where's this going to go? What's it going to mean to us? And, And we're finding interesting things that, as you say, I think it's not really so much the medical aspects, it's going to be what changes in the workplace. Uh, one of the things that we we're speculating on is we may be moving more and more towards a cashless society, because eventually what you're going to have is people not wanting to exchange money. Uh, we're already seeing that in some of the stores. And so the idea of you have a card that goes in a machine that can be sanitized after you're done and the next customer comes up and we never exchange cash which then has a ripple effect because it has a bearing on people of low income that don't necessarily have bank accounts or have the ability to get credit cards or debit cards. And so it's going to be an interesting time to see what happens. Uh, The idea of the, uh, the open plan office, which has been sort of losing a lot of interest here in the United States. We're finding a lot of research shows it's not very efficient, but this is probably going to push that even further. Now, I think we're going to jump ahead maybe 10 years and we're going to see this hybrid office where we have people that are working from home, people that are there part-time as, as, as needed consultants, and then the, the small group of people that are permanent staff. And that then opens up the issue of security issues. What happens when your intellectual property is now on somebody's home computer and, and maybe they don't have the latest, uh, the latest patch that deals with security. So a lot of these things, I think we're going to start saying changes that we don't understand. Restaurants, will they be able to stay open if they have to separate their tables out? I, there's one restaurant my wife and I enjoy going to that you're very close to your the people next to you because it's a small restaurant and he's packed in as many folks as he can. Uh, that's going to have to change. And so will he be able to sustain his business? Yeah. Will he have to raise his prices so much that uh, <laughs> none of us can afford to go there anymore? <laughs> These are impacts that we don't think about, but they are going to mm-hmm. be long lasting and they affect every, really every area or facet of life. And I just wonder if when you're working with, um, as the director of emergency management for San Francisco, what sort of situations were you involved in there that you had to respond oh. to? It was actually kind of a busy time when I was there. <laughs> I look at my, the, the successors that came after me and said, well, you guys had it easy, didn't you? Uh, one of the big things that we were dealing with at the time are power outages in California. We, we have a, a very complex system of how we balance power in California. Some of it comes from outside the state, some of it from within the state, and moving things around isn't always as easy as people think. And, and so what we started having was power brownouts, essentially. The, the, the Pacific Gas and Electric Company had come up with a system where they would rotate power outages when things got too bad. It, there, was, there was more demand than there was supply at the time. Okay. Now, later on, we found that there was some manipulation going on and some folks went to, to jail over it. But uh, the bottom line was what we had to deal with as emerged managers was this fact that at a certain time each day, we had a good chance that there'd be a portion of the city shut down. And what would make it more difficult for us is that when the power company refers to blocks of electricity, they weren't referring to like city blocks. They were referring to blocks of circuits. So turning off a block from the from the power company might mean that we have a hospital in one part of town, a nursing home in the other part of town, a manufacturing facility, uh, 
stores, malls, things like that, and, but they'd be scattered over the city. So one of the things we had to develop was uh, how are we going to find out where these things are? How are we going to, we had to interface with the, the power company and figure out what we could download from them so we could then plot that against our city maps and say, okay, today we know that these areas are going to be a problem area and we'd think about traffic control points. We'd think about extra security. Uh, we'd think about notifying you know, people that were at risk. And, and so it was kind of kept us busy. And then San Francisco always has a lot of uh, civil, dis not civil disturbances, <laughs> uh, a lot of uh, uh, parades and protest marches and things like that. So that's always a headache. And, and at that particular time, there, there was a lot of that sort of thing going on. And, you know, San Francisco, we're definitely like, you know, it's, it's a land of peace here. You know? <laughs> but everybody that was against the war would want to have a protest in San Francisco because they know, you know, we're sympathetic. Uh, what that's actually created for us is an interesting situation where our police are extremely well-versed in dealing with crowds. And they ha have a way of keeping things on track without, without a lot of the problems that you see in other parts of the country. You know, they really know how to deal with, the, with marchers. They really know how to enforce the law without getting crazy about it. And we have very few occasions where things go south on us. It's really what interesting. What else did we do? I was yeah. trying to write really fast about that. You said, so because the, the actual, when they talked about a grid, it's not a location based, it's an electrical system based. So you had to right. think traffic, security, notifying people, um, hospitals. That, that's a huge number of different things that are all impacted yeah. by this one situation. Give us another example of something you're involved in where you had to think about all these different things. Ooh. One of the things that we did in San Francisco that I found was very, very effective was every month we held a meeting with the different planners from each of the departments. And initially, when I first got there, I inherited a meeting that was really long. It was just several hours worth of meetings and they really didn't accomplish anything. So we eventually evolved a system working with these folks where we had a, a portion of the meeting where it was things you need to know, announcements, things like that. But there would be something that you could take away. There would be a uh, a discussion about maybe something new that FEMA had released or something that had happened that we wanted to talk about. So we'd have sort of a little mini class that we would give people. Then we would do a, a quick tabletop exercise based on something that had either occurred or was about to occur. Uh, and sometimes, you know, people would look at us like, yeah, really? Uh, remember, we have a, a uh, quite a lot of bike riders, we, I forget, it was critical mass. Every Friday, all these bikers would get together and ride through the city and they wouldn't pay too much attention about traffic rules and where the police were and things like that. So they were setting up a really big one. And we, we had a, a tabletop where we said to people, we're gonna look at this and what would happen if things get a little crazy. And they're like, no, 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 we just had a big meeting with them. Everything's fine, everything's been great. And, and of course, that turned into a real nightmare, that particular one. There, there were a couple of incidents, several people were arrested. Uh, next month, we came back and said, you know, we'd like to do that same exercise again. Everybody said, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. We should do that. <laughs> so, so, you know, so we do that. And then one of the things that, uh, surprisingly, we just sort of go around the table and what are you working on? And every now and again, something would come up where people would say, I didn't know you were doing that and we need to talk because that's going to create a problem. Uh, for example, we had a, uh, uh, one of the, the big bike rallies that they were going to do and they had everything laid on. The police had been working with the, the bike, the organizers for months and 
what we found was they were going to go around this big circle, you know, multiple times. And the fire department came out of their chair and said, you do realize that we have to be able to respond into that circle. And we also have a fire station in that circle. that has got to be able to get out. And nobody had ever thought about if you've closed off the circular race route, how is this going to happen? And so we had to bring the police and the fire together and they, they worked it out. It was not a big issue, but nobody had thought about it. And, and that's why I think this idea of bringing people together, having them in the same room, having them talk to each other and exchange ideas, that really makes a big difference from, from the perspective of you know, keeping things on track. You mentioned at the start about going into businesses and, and often you, you think, we think that you can go in and take an idea from one place and transplant it into another mm -hmm. place. How do you go through that discovery process with the business and identify the gaps and what you need to do? Well, each business is a little bit different. I mean, one of the things that I try is not to go in with preconceived notions uh, and, and not to go in with the idea that there's something wrong. You know, people sometimes think oh, they're calling in a consultant, therefore there must be something wrong. And not necessarily, you know, people, people may just want to have things checked up or they may actually be doing things right. They just need you to confirm that. Uh, there are a number of things that I do when I go in. The first is anything that they have in writing, I like to see. You know, if they have an existing plan, I want to start with that. And then I like to do one-on-one -on -one interviews. Uh, if I can't do that, then I'll do group, you know, group meeting. Um, occasionally, I'll start with a group meeting and then break out into individual e interviews. But ultimately, it's talking to people and finding out what's really happening. And one-on-one -on -one people will tell you things they won't necessarily say in a group meeting. And so I, I'd like to get that personal end of things going. Uh, sometimes I've done that remotely. I, I had one project that was really interesting. It was a, uh, a local, well, a national organization that, that had a group of, of, it was an industry organization. And one of the things they wanted to do was to come up with a plan or a, a, a template for an emergency plan that each of their members could use. In interviewing the members, one of the things that we found out was they really didn't need that. They, they already had plans. What they really wanted was some way of making sure that their plans were in fact good and would do the things they needed to do. So I went back to the client, we talked about it, and what we did was we changed it to rather than creating a new plan template, we created a, a guidance document that kind of looked, these are the areas you need to make sure are in your plan. We gave some examples of best practices that people had done. And, and we tried to make it something that was simple but then could be used to do an assessment on their existing plan and find out where they might have some gaps. So I think, you know, talking to people is just, it's a lot of what I do. So for the people that um, are enrolled into our programs and they're thinking about using what they're learning in this course to stay in the present industry or maybe branching out to another one, these are the, the people who have been in here for a while in, in the oil and gas industry or other industries. What would you say to people that are either presently in or looking to move into this sector, this industry? What are some training, some experiences, some things they need to do to make sure that they have that career experience to really make a contribution? Well, I think that one of the things that people don't realize is there is a wealth of information already out there on emergency management. When I first came to emergency management, I was with FEMA for, I don't know, six months or so before I even realized they offered sub-courses online that I could be taking to teach me my job. Uh, and I do recommend, by the way, that if, you, if people are looking at it, they should take a look at the FEMA sub-courses. There's some very good ones there, uh, their distance learning program. Uh, but I think one of the things that I suggest to people is 
you have to broaden your perspective. So you need to understand where the research is and start looking at some of the basic research. Uh, I think the big advantage that people coming into the profession now have over people like me is they starting with that. They, they've got a class that they can, like, like your program, you know, they have a program that they can get involved in that teaches them the academic side of thing. What, what they usually will lack is experience. And that, so that's what we're trying to figure out. How do we give people experience? Most of my generation came to emergency management with experience, but not with this background. And, and so we've made a lot of mistakes. For example, a lot of our plans are based on the old concept that you know people are going to panic. Therefore, we have to be in charge. We have to be, you know, just there's going to be a strong central authority. You can't let people get away with anything. And and we've, obviously, if you go back and you read history, you'll find that that's never been the case. And that people don't panic. They try to organize. I, I did a presentation recently for our, our national organization. And one of the things I talked about was comparing three or four different disasters throughout history in the United States and finding out that people reacted pretty much the same in terms of how they reorganized themselves right after the disaster. The, uh, the Johnson flood, for example, San Francisco, Chicago, they all did the same thing. It all came together, broke up into functional groups and went out and tried to deal with the problem that they had. So learning how people have done things in the past, learning mm. what, what the research is showing us, learning you know what what makes how people will actually react in a crisis versus how we think they'll react uh, i think is, is the single biggest thing i would suggest to people read some of the research uh, particularly people like uh, enrico corntelli his his stuff is so accessible there there definitely is some research that you know my eyes glaze over and i just you know i can't deal with it either and i've been doing i'm actually on a couple of journals as, as an editor so you know, I, I do every now and again get that, oh my God, what's this guy writing about? I don't understand. <laughs> but there are people like, like I say, like Enrico Corntelli is one of the earliest one, Russell Dines. Uh, these are all big names, Claire Rubin. Uh, all their material is very, very interesting and very accessible and, you know, certainly worth taking a look at. So if I were advising somebody that is getting into this profession, I would say start, start with the basics, start reading books, start reading history. Uh, you know, it, it's really about this mindset of, of understanding how people are going to react and, and what you can do to help them. Mm. Sometimes it's like the, the old joke about, you know, just find out which way they're heading and get in front of them. Then, you know, you'll be considered a leader. <laughs> but it's certainly true. People will react well in disasters in most cases. For people who have these transferable skills and do get some experience, I get the impression from talking to people over the last couple of weeks that this particular sector of emergency response is going to grow and become quite pervasive. What do you see in terms of the prospects for someone who's working in this particular industry? Well, I think you need to pick your industry. Uh, one of the things that I, we see, unfortunately, in, in the United States is most of these young kids that are coming out are thinking about public sector work. And for my money, I think the, the real place is the private sector. I think there's a lot of demand. People are beginning to realize they need somebody in there. It, it's still very confusing in the private sector because you'll find people that are under the chief financial officer. You'll find them some that are under the chief operating officer, some that are, you know, they're buried somewhere in, in somewhere else in the organization. So it, it's really hard to figure out where things are going to go, but we're seeing more and more that people are understanding that there is a need for emergency management. There, there is a linkage with us and business continuity. 
You know, we always get get a couple of emergency managers and continuity managers together over beer, and you'll who's who's on top? You know, is it is, is it business continuity and emergency management is part of that, or is it emergency management business continuity is part of that? And and it really doesn't matter. The thing is that there's this linkage, and you need both of them together. And, and the same with uh, with some of the other things that even security has its part to play. So, I think the way I envision emergency management that I think. I think it's, it's really the case is that you have to think of us as general practitioners in the medical field. You know, we need to know a little bit about everything, but we don't have to be the experts in everything. You know, we need to know who the experts are and how to get them to come and participate in the project. We need to essentially bring people together and have them share a common objective, you know, get, get them thinking along the same lines. And, and that's what I think is the strength that we bring to this is that we try to see this big picture and we try to get everybody playing, you know, a police officer or a fire officer are experts at what they do. And there's no point in my trying to learn their job. I'll never be able to do that, but I need to be able to talk their language and, and get them to talk to each other. And so I think that's what we bring to the table as our marriage managers. We sometimes pull things out of a hat, you know, because we know somebody, you know, it's like, yeah, I know a guy, you know, that old joke. And, and, that's exactly what happens. Some, somebody will come up, we got this problem, we'll be talking through it. And I thought, wait a minute, this, there's this organization that I know that might be able to help us. And we, we give them a call. So we do, do this putting of things and people together and logistics and we're ideas people. Uh, the other thing we do is ad hoc response, you know, where we, we sit down, here's a problem and we kind of figure out who needs to be there and bring that. I'll give you a good example. Shortly after I joined the city of San Francisco, there was a garbage strike that took place. And I got a call down in my office said, from the mayor's staff and they said, hey, you, here you guys got a bunch of maps down there. Would you bring a few of them up here? And I'm like, yeah, okay. And they said, well, what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out where to, where to put collection sites. You know, the theory is that people will bring their garbage to this collection site the uh, management folks for these garbage companies will, will take care of picking it up and getting it out. And then, hey, you, you live here in the city. What, what are some good? So I ended up being part of this process of helping them to plan it. And as we got to talking, there were all these discussions about, well, we, we'll, we'll need to think about security and we'll need to think about the public health aspect. And we'll need to think about what our public works. And I said, you know, you guys are talking about interagency planning. You know, that's what we do. And they kind of looked at me like, what? So I called a couple of my staffers. We got together and we said, look, what you need is an interagency team to go and assess each of these sites. That's what we do. We'll take care of it. And I think we started at about two or three in the afternoon. By six o'clock, we had about six or seven teams of different folks from different agencies all together, briefed and ready to go out. And of course, the strike was, was called off just before we did all that. But we, we had it and we made a lot of inroads with the mayor's office because they realized that, you know, it's not just about when the earth shakes. It's about if you have a problem that requires interagency solutions, that's what we do. We bring people together and, and have them talk to each other. Brilliant. That is a great insight. Thank you for ending the show with that. Lucy, and I really want to thank you for your time and giving your expertise, your experience. My pleasure. Your wisdom. Thank you so much.